Hello. Howdy doody. We're back. <laughs> um, this is our name here. Yeah. Welcome back again. Yes. And again and again. Where are we getting through this season? That's it's true. Uh, flying right on by. That's true. Can you believe it's already New Year's? Yeah. It's already Nobody been. ever will say that to you in the next <laughs> week. <laughs> the 16th episode of the second season. Happy New Year, everybody. Hope, yeah. Hope you had a festive holiday season. So. Happy New Year. Chris just did that to everybody and will continue for the next week. <laughs> um, so this is Inner Name here and you're back and we're back. I uh, want to thank everybody because like, this past week has been probably the biggest week that we've ever had so thanks keep yeah, it up thanks keep for telling listening. people it's been uh, <clears throat> pleasant it's yes like yeah we're shocked and keeping awed. us motivated <laughs> yeah i did i had a very motivated <clears throat> week i think i got a good story tonight until i fumble it yeah well that's all right yeah. they're not expecting anything near perfection <laughs> hopefully they might just put this in their baby's crib so then they put them to sleep who knows i don't just keep listening and hey, telling people if we got a soothing voice um, we got a soothing voice yeah send us emails if you want uh, in a name here podcast at gmail.com. Yeah. That's the one I know. Yeah, and then I know that Facebook is in her name here, Instagram, in her name here podcast. So um, thanks. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so we'll get to it and we'll start with our normal thing. This week we're going to do uh, our topic. We're doing the letter M. So, you know, I, <laughs> I'm assuming that both of us have something that starts with the letter M. The top of my notes. Just to like narrow it down a little bit for us. The letter M as in Emma. <laughs> <laughs> all right well that's not it and that's gonna be funny if that's funny what you did me, yeah um our magic 13th number 13th letter of the alphabet so yeah. so but before we do that we'll go not the letter m we're gonna talk about uh florida for a second because oh definitely not the letter m this is a florida woman changing the name to morida well she's also it, she's she's dealing in a lawsuit here with reese's our favorite mm. like um multiple varieties <laughs> candy um is this is the one we talked about this before. no we haven't talked about this lady uh cynthia kelly is her name and uh she's uh being she's suing a disgruntled she's she's disgruntled and she's suing reese's or hershey i'm sorry saying that the halloween themed peanut butter uh pumpkins didn't match the packaging <laughs> she was especially fond of the cute looking eyes and mouth shown on the packages and uh of oh, the pumpkins Lord. prompting her to spend four dollars and 49 cents on them at an aldi supermarket when she opened the bag she found not only were the facial features missing there were no carvings whatsoever so it's yeah. just a pumpkin it's, it's just a blob animated of, front it's still delicious um her legal case a class action lawsuit is seeking five million dollars uh, or the equ equivalent to 1.1 million bags of peanut butter pumpkins and it accuses the uh big chocolate company of being quote materially misleading numerous consumers have been tricked and misled by the pictures on the pr products packaging and she's not only citing the halloween treats in her case but a football a, the peanut butter football reese's peanut butter football because it doesn't actually feature laces seen on the packages. Uh, sounds uh, 
I mean, she's correct about all of this, but it sounds bogus, and she deserves nothing but her money back, maybe. She, I don't I mean, even, not even I, that, I really, think that she should have to pay Hershey's, <laughs> Hershey's uh, law, law costs. Yeah. It's like Hershey's anybody, has not commented on this case, by the way. So Anybody that's been, quote-unquote, duped by uh, Hershey's on that or one. Or any yeah, picture on like, an advertisement. You're, you're an idiot. You I think mean, you're going to go you know. to McDonald's? And get the burg- the Big Mac that's shown in the commercial. You're right. an idiot. Exactly. Yeah. You know they've got to stand on that thing first, <laughs> and get it all flat, and then they wrap it up. And if you're this lady, they're going to spit on it too. <laughs> right. Sure. That's absolutely true. That's why she's we don't angry. condone that behavior yeah. at all. But why does everyone always treat me this way? Why are my burgers always so goopy? <laughs> I don't know. Nobody wants a goopy burger. Cynthia Ooh. Kelly, drop it. Like that's just yeah, ridiculous. Cynthia so Kelly. I mean. Yeah, the picture. I mean, how many pictures are on all sorts of things that aren't... Right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You open a box of Lucky Charms and you want a leprechaun jumping around in there? Come on. (laughs) He'd suffocate. (laughs) God. Oh, well, I've got, um... I got something else stupid, I guess, as long as we're talking about stupid mine. All right, well, that's going to work good for my next one, too. We don't often dip into real news you know like i mean we do but not real news like uh i just saw today this story about uh how michael cohen used uh, artificial intelligence to uh like help his legal case oh really <laughs> well i guess he has a case where he's trying to get out of uh whatever terms he is on his house arrest thing like right we're talking about the former fixer yes the yeah, former okay. fixer okay. yeah exactly but uh, i guess in his case uh some of the um cases they were using in his argument to get off of his house arrest thing were uh i guess created by chat gpt and they were bogus and his lawyer didn't like double check like he said uh-huh. here's all this stuff that you know proves that oh, this wow. can happen and so his lawyer presented it in court only to find out later when the judge said well i need to see he's like i can't find anything on these cases like, you know you need to show me something hmm. that shows me right like are these cases real? No, no, they were not real. They were. Uh oh. So yeah, Michael Cohen, which I guess I kind of believe him. He he assumed that when he asked ChatGPT to find him cases that would help help him right. in his cause, that it was going to give him cases. Sure, that were but you real. should also double check that stuff. ChatGPT does a very good job of telling you, hey. <laughs> Be careful with right. the information I'm giving you because it's yeah, you know, it's we're trying it, to t- tell it to tell us. Uh, dirty jokes and it wouldn't to it. Right. It would tell us your mom jokes because it could offend us exactly so i, I don't know yes yeah, so i don't just, even need to read from the story but yeah that's essentially the story it's like oh wow what a by two lawyers no less like him being a lawyer himself although he's disbarred and his own lawyer neither one of them had enough gumption about them to just double check right i mean they also have uh what are they called paralegals right i mean they've got people I mean, those those are like big time firms that have right. lots of people that work there that can yeah so i mean and they have many leather bound books yeah. that they can check and yeah all sorts of stuff hmm. yeah and i mean years and years of education no less i mean <laughs> yeah well, i mean well you got to be somewhat practiced at your profession, though. I mean, not, I guess not all well, of them are. There's definitely varying degrees right, of law sure. schools, you know what I mean? Like Very true. If you're rich, you're not going to, like, 
Bob and Joe's law school <laughs> right. to get your lawyers. You're going to like the top notch schools to pick your lawyers. What kind of lawyer you're getting if they're not double checking all their facts before they present them in court? Yeah, right? you know, or at least having someone else double check all yeah, their facts. Two people. I mean, <laughs> you got you <laughs> typing into um, Chat GPT twice. If it gives you the same information, it might be more likely to be true. I mean, that's actually, I, I do it all the time. I'm like, well, let me ask it in a different way. And right. it's like, oh, look, get different stuff. We said, yeah, you got to be careful with chat GPT. I mean, that's why I like to talk about it so well, the much because it's so thing. funny. Yeah, like the, yeah the, actually. The mom jokes that we told to tell us clean mom jokes, which were actually probably more offensive than yeah. Dirty mom. If you jokes. had a dirty mind, <laughs> yeah. Anyways, check it out. You you can search for yourself. Yeah, you have to ask for nice mom jokes though. Yeah. It won't just tell you a mom joke. It'll start getting all like holier than thou <laughs> when it comes to telling regular mom jokes. Which is so. also kind of neat, but yeah. Anyway. Yeah. So yeah, that was my Chat GPT huh. story. Well, right. That's interesting. It um, is. it is interesting. We'll go. You have a, yeah, I have something else oh, about okay. science yeah. since that's kind of scientific and like you know futuristic with chat. It is. And stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, scientists Ouch. make VR goggles for mice, oh, so they can weird. feel what it's like to be attacked by a bird. What? So they have this. I don't know if this picture is actually. It looks like a computer-generated picture, but it's very similar to. It's not like putting, they just have like two screens in front of the mouse's eyes, and the, and the mouse is like basically held in place. Yeah. And then on those, like the VR glasses, they're not like sitting little glasses on it or like the headset or whatever, but like it's like two two screens over it, and then it'll, they'll uh, show video of um, like attacking birds and see how the uh, mice, <sighs> how they react. React to it, to it. yeah. Um, <clears throat> I mean that's that's interesting. It's called miniature rodent, rodent stereo illumination VR, and uh, <laughs> it's made up of two lenses and two screens split between both eyes to give the rodents an immersive 3D picture. Um, so it's just like VR for humans. You can't see outside world, and you're made to feel like you're somewhere else. Uh, unlike the headsets we wear, which wrap around our heads, these perch on the front of the mouse's face. So, wow. Yeah, I guess um, it doesn't have much of a head to to hang on to. Right. Yeah. I mean, they they they're just trying to figure out more and more about behavior of animals. I guess. You right. Know? Um. They said that they um, the goggles help them engage with the environment in a more natural way, as opposed to being just in a lab. I guess you know, like. Yeah. Um, another advantage researchers said is that they can simulate aerial threats like birds of prey. Um, I mean, it's very neat. I, uh, oh, they put them on yeah. a treadmill while they're doing it. Kind of want to watch some of this. Yeah, I kind of do too. Especially the treadmill. You said the that. Little, I'm like, well, is, it, is it a regular sized treadmill or is it a little yeah. treadmill, mouse sized treadmill? I mean, I'm a big fan of just watching them do the wheel. I mean, <laughs> yeah, and so then they like you know see their like heart rate and all the like huh, yeah. all the other reactions that happen and whether it tries to. Like, bolt one way or the other yeah, or, does it move does it recognize that it's I not mean, real you know, the poor I mean, mouse doesn't know what the fuck's going on right now. i can't imagine that it doesn't think it's not real but yeah that <clears> says <throat> it, it like basically it'll show video but a lot of times it's just the shadow coming instantly down on them and see how they react and like oh wow yeah interesting so yay science yeah yay science indeed um not a yay story this one uh it might be a little bit long i'll try to do it without reading too much but uh this uh 
saw this story about this couple that uh, said they sold everything to go on a three-year cruise. I've seen people that do that. Yeah. Move on to cruise ships. Yeah, yeah. Like, I guess this is the, um, well, it it is hasn't happened yet. <laughs> but it was uh, supposed to be the longest one ever. Like, the, the longer ones these days tend to go for a year just because logistically it's hard to to do more than that and like have everything you need and like it's etc etc you're all water slotted <laughs> out by then you're all water slotted out but i guess um a lot of them at least from reading this very long article from new york times uh, a lot of them are set up for people to be able to work from them so they have their own like internet uh like oh. access and like so they can work like on the go like while they're on the cruise they live on the boat essentially i've seen it more as like the retirees that are right. just like we sold our house and now we're just going to live here because it's cheaper yeah i mean these people um and i'll get to it in a little bit in the article uh they realized that it was cheaper for them to go on this supposed cruise than it was to live in whatever city they were living in for three years so <clears throat> yeah, so they sold everything, you know, and like all their money they put into it. And well, <clears throat> as this article puts it at one point, it's uh, kind of like the fire festival, which I don't know a whole lot about, but it was like a big festival that was like advertised out the ass and right. put together and everybody like and everybody bought, bought their tickets, tickets and then they and, just dipped out on it. Yeah, yeah, they got there and it was basically nothing. <laughs> right. And so, yeah, these people are holed up in an airport. Um, oh, no. I think in Istanbul, uh, the company that set them up with or that was supposed to set them up with the cruise is setting them up in this hotel but will likely run out at some point soon and they'll be homeless because they don't have anything wow <laughs> yeah all their money got are they from istanbul they are not they're from the u.s i'll read a little oh, bit no. from this article and like they're, and, uh, they're gonna be stuck in another country's <clears throat> airport yeah, I mean, yeah. like the, it's almost the movie like, uh, the terminal yeah the terminal it's but, wonderful um, Kara and Joe Youssef sold their two apartments, withdrew their life savings, gave up most of their belongings, and in late October set out for Istanbul for the trip of a lifetime, a three-year cruise around the world scheduled to depart November 1st, and that was this year. Um, but in late November, after months of behind-the-scenes chaos, the Yusufs were stuck in Istanbul with the cruise company canceling the trip. It did not have a ship that could handle the journey. So, long story short, essentially the company that set it up claimed to have this boat which um before they knew it was bought out from under them by someone else so they didn't have the boat that could do this three-year journey hmm. and so they get hooked up with this other company that claims that they can do it but they're also just bullshitting they don't have the money that they say they have they don't have the capabilities that they say they have and so in the end like just the way that the whole pay system for people making deposits on, you know, rooms on the ship and all of that, it just, uh, it was chaos from day one. Like, huh. They didn't have an account set up to even, like, put money into before they started selling things. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, do your research before right. you get into that kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, so they interviewed several of these people, and it was just like, you know, the red flags, unfortunately for them, didn't start showing up until too late, and... Yeah, so a uh, lady says, they kept leading us on, making us hold out hope until the very last minute, just days before we were supposed to supposed to depart. We sold everything we have to make this dream happen. We feel completely defeated. So, yeah. Um, that, yeah, long story short, I didn't want to make it go too long. But, yeah, these people basically are stuck. Uh, they This company is saying they're going to refund everybody, but according to the people involved, they haven't seen any money yet, and some people have gotten partial refunds, but sounds like the company doesn't have the money to refund all these people. Ugh. Like, they've already spent all of the money trying to make the trip happen, 
<laughs> and now the trip's not going to happen, but they've spent all the money. <laughs> yeah, well, that's... <laughs> yeah, and uh, yeah, they, maybe that's not going to be living on... They're going to be on a different kind of boat. Right. Be on living on a fishing boat yeah. for three years working. So it was a, <clears throat> a really long New York Times article that was actually pretty interesting. But, it, yeah, long story short, there, there was no boat that could do the journey that hadn't already been bought by another company for other reasons. Hmm. So it was a bunch of people fronting their money, or their money they didn't have, essentially, <laughs> to make a bunch more money than nah, their people. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Although the people, I mean, it sounds grand, like life savings just to live on a boat for a while. I mean, I don't know what your plan is, though. What's the long-term plan with, the, <clears throat> with something oh, like that? Oh, you can that? eat buffets, baby. <laughs> right. I mean, I guess if that's your long-term plan, then long <clears throat> I mean, isn't, it, isn't that it, much of a turn. I'd argue that that's not like the worst way to live, I guess. Right. I mean, yeah. I don't. Want You're to be in a, a floating resort, but also a lot of those. I mean, you know, they got bigger rooms, but sometimes the rooms are you know, bathroom sized. Yeah. Well, I mean, they had different tiers, and like some of the rooms weren't suites. Like they're just a room, you know, like they, a square. Yeah. Like you have other places on the boat to go do work and stuff if that's what you're doing you know but i mean you know most of them have several bars and you know yeah. clubs and all this other stuff and then you know you go sit at the pool right. and yeah i mean i imagine some people were just gonna cruise for three years i mean there's there's wealthy people out there. those things are huge <laughs> right <laughs> yeah i don't know it's interesting yeah it's yeah exactly very interesting i agree i heard somebody one time saying that the best thing to do would be uh if you wanted to get rid of big swaths of people and uh wide variety of people all quickly and mm -hmm. you just like sink cruise ships like once every month or something <laughs> you just get rid of like these you know right somewhat homogeneous groups but also like kind of varied groups too you know depending on the cruise line but yeah i mean people dep yeah, depending on who you're getting rid of that's the yeah. cruise line you'll choose yeah <laughs> and i, I was mean, like oh that's it's a hell of an yeah, idea. It's a good actually. way to get rid of like three or four thousand people at a time. I'd say there's more effective ways. Yeah, I mean, that, I'm not condoning that behavior either. The world we live in, it almost seems like something that could probably happen in a, you know, in a, in a I don't horrible know if, world. If, if every the, two months, a fucking cruise ship was sinking. I think people would stop cruising. <laughs> You know what I mean? Like, well, I guess I was thinking people would know more about it and know that they could do this to people, and you know, yeah, okay, you could, you could pay saying. for it to happen, and somehow it was. You're saying to be suspicious to, like, yeah, it would definitely be how, suspicious. How many if, how uh, many ships would sink before people would stop? <laughs> I mean, stop getting going on cruises. You know what I mean? Like, I would say it'd have to be a whole lot because there's a lot of people out there that just do not care. They're just like, oh, think it'll be me. I know it's 37 of them this year, <laughs> right. but. I know it's I not have a be 70% this one. chance of it's not it happening. Be this one. <laughs> and you know chocolate milk comes from brown cows, right? Yeah. Anyway. Right. So. Beachfront property in Arizona. is not a country so. Yeah, I think so. Or oceanfront property there, in Arizona. There yeah. you go. Yep. Well, that's interesting. You know, just go on different vacations. Do, do what you want. Yeah, I mean, do what you want. Maybe not do the three-year cruise well because it doesn't exist. That's right. <laughs> if you want to just stay at home for three years, just go on the uh, that that cruise line that they just dealt with. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, a, you could just stay at home. Put a kiddie pool in your basement. And you can pay to stay at home. Yeah. Anyway, so that's cool. Yeah. Well, hey. Or not cool, I guess. I just yeah. found this out. Oh, did you? Mine's gonna be a crossover between the news and the hey, I just found this out. All right. So um, Chris has had cats. I've had cats. A lot of people have had cats. Most people have heard of cats. What is it again? 
cats. Um, okay, tell me more. They're mammals. That starts with an M. <laughs> All right. <laughs> Just saying. Uh, Is that the crossover? <laughs> yep, that's it. That's my story for the day. Anyways. Oh, um, that's good. Everybody's been around cats, and you play with them with the laser pointer, right? Yeah. Well, the laser pointer just makes them feel good. They like it. Yeah, um, yeah, they do like chasing stuff. They, they're, uh, they're hunters. They have a high prey drive, and P-R-E-Y. Not, they're not yeah, into prey. Yeah, they're hunters, for sure. And uh, they're natural predators, so they, their instinct is to try to catch the red dot. They can see it, but the dog won't even notice it because the dog's colorblind. So, anyways, the... Uh, the, when you move the the light the laser quickly it mimics motions you know you you can always steer them and like stop it and move it real quick and get them all interested and stuff right. so anyway so that has to do with uh a uh orange tabby cat named taters <laughs> and uh this past uh. week and it's been about a week now um the first uh, video transmitted by laser from deep space was uh, sent back to Cape Canaveral in Florida. And it was of the orange tabby cat named Taters and uh, chasing the laser on a chair for 15 seconds. Um, it was sent from uh, NASA's <laughs> spacecraft called Psyche, and it's 19 million miles away. Wow. Uh, it took less than two minutes for the ultra-high-def video to reach caltech's polymer observatory sent at the test system's maximum range of 267 megabits per second so sorry i said it was in florida but it was in california same thing 267 mega megabits per second it was 19 million miles and it took less than two minutes and this was like i mean you can go on nasa's page and look at this video it's just a cat on a chair with a laser pointer just bouncing around the cat's named taters <laughs> and like i mean he just made history Taters. so <clears throat> love it that's a good name god that is a good name Taters. um yeah so the 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 mountain transmitter shot the laser out to the spacecraft and right. then it beamed it back and it's ultra high def and all these like nasa nerds and you know stuff like that are sitting around and they're they're watching this video and they're all yeah. like, "Oh, look at cat!" <laughs> they're NASA nerd caves because <clears throat> I don't know if they were told what was going to be sent. They were just told that a video was being sent. So, I mean, that's pretty cool. Yeah, check it out if you like watching cat videos with lasers. I'm glad so, you found that out. I just found that out. Yeah. Sure. Hey, guess what? I just found out. <laughs> Close, but sure. Oh, is that not it? I just hey, I just found oh this hey, out. I, hey, Whatever. I just found we know, this. We know we know it's going to get messed up. <laughs> um. I was uh, looking at um, Atlas Obscura today, like I like to do sometimes, and I I learned about the uh, Iola Downtown Square. Um, <laughs> it's a uh, in the little thing on Atlas Obscura says it's hip to be square in Iola, home of the largest town square in the United States. Hmm. So yeah, nearing the town of Iola, Kansas, you'll pass a billboard that reads, "Our square is bigger than yours." In fact, Iola is home to the largest downtown square in the United States. Determined by the local Chamber of Commerce, and the town has aligned its tourism around its big central tract of land. So it does show quite a few pictures of it, and it is quite a big town square. Big grassy. A lot bigger than the one in uh, Back to the Future. Yeah, yeah, a lot bigger than that one. Although very similar, Iola's, uh, it 
looks like a really old town, you know. They show some old pictures of it, too. But um, hmm. the downtown square was formalized after the completion of the Allen County Cornhouse. Court, cornhouse. Courthouse Same in 1904, right? But it wasn't until <clears throat> recently that the town began to compete for the largest town square title in the country. After discovering that a square in Graham, Texas, had a road running through it, the Chamber of Commerce made the claim and continues to do so based on the principle that no one has yet challenged them. <laughs> That's the part I liked about this story. All right. <laughs> it's like it's yeah. not the official biggest town square, but Chamber of Commerce is like, yeah, whatever, we're going to call it that. So the square is two blocks long and two blocks wide. The square grounds include the current Allen County Courthouse, a veteran's memorial wall, and the clock from the old 1904 courthouse. It sounds a lot like Back to the Future. Right. It uh, And it still chimes every Mayor. hour. <laughs> Colorful storefronts ring the square, as do the boyhood home of General Frederick Funston and the Allen County Historical Museum. It doesn't tell me who What General was his name? Funston? Funston? Yeah, Frederick nice. Funston. Oh, my God. Yeah, Fred That's Funston. not even a real... Is that an AI name? Right. Is this a real story? General Fred Funston. Wow, General. <laughs> yeah. Which is funny. They, it doesn't tell me at all. I mean, this is obviously submitted by just a regular old person. But uh, yeah. is it, So it's an actual square, like the shape. Because mm-hmm. a lot of times a town square isn't necessarily square. Yeah, this one's actually, mm-hmm. yeah, what did it say, two blocks by two blocks? It's actually, mm-hmm. um, it's a, uh, I mean, we know the drill field, field here, uh here at Virginia Tech, and it's um, not as big as that, but it's three quarters of that, maybe. I can't believe there's not one bigger. Yeah. To be honest, yeah. There's a yeah. lot of places with a lot of space. Well, and maybe there is. It's kind of like that uh, world record of what was it, the, the dog tongue? It's like, well, right. Yeah. yeah. Nobody I mean, thought about it. Right. You would think somebody would have already been like, we've yeah. got the biggest town square. So there's probably a town square out there, but they just haven't heard If yet. I ever become like a filthy rich person <laughs> that i'm gonna buy up <clears throat> a town square uh, no, I just buy up a bunch of land and make a town just to have a bigger town square just to fuck with them there you go <laughs> and that kind of actually is a good time to uh is that is that a good segue that is a really good segue actually Uh-oh. um got a hell of a story yeah mine's the letter m it's just mm. the story of the letter m it was first written in by Campbell's <laughs> on the soup can. Yeah, mm-hmm. that's right. Good. That's right. <laughs> and it was first written in Aramaic. In 1953. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways. Um, Although Campbell's was around well before that. Marjorie Merriweather Post mm. is her name. Mm. That's what I'm going to tell you about. Um, All right. Now, this Marjorie is pretty cool. Like That name has kind of been co-opted today to be idiot. <clears throat> Marjorie? Then, yeah. Yeah. Um, but Marjorie Merriweather Post was a nice person, and like you know, she was definitely pretty well off. Because, uh, well, we'll find out. She's part of the Post family. Well, before well, I'm we before we talk about Marjorie, we got to talk about her dad, who's named C.W. Post. Yeah. And he was born way back in the eighteen scaries in eighteen fifty four, but it wasn't so scary for these people, really. So, um, <laughs> right. at about the age of 20, he started working as a salesman and a manufacturer of agricultural machinery. Okay. So okay. pre, pre like, you know, tractors and stuff. I mean, well, not pre tractor, but pre like big regular machinery, like we see. Yeah, right. Yeah, so, exactly. um, <clears throat> and during the time that he was working there, he invented and patent, patented several farm tools, including cultivators, uh, a thing called a sulky plow, which is like the one that dry, like rides behind 
ox or horse or whatever oh, that, okay. like the metal blade that digs into the ground yeah, i didn't know that's what it was um called. a harrow which is like you drag behind your horses to like it's a hero with a to, lot of hair yeah to uh flatten off what you just tilled to like smooth the ground back out the kind of thing okay um and a haystacker so i mean he was definitely like he knew what he was doing with stuff so in 1874, C.W. married Ella Letitia Merriweather. L.L. Um, Letitia? Ella Letitia. Oh, okay. I thought you said L.L. Letitia. Ella Letitia. Letitia. Like precursor to L.L. Cool J. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah. L.L. <laughs> Merriweather. Um, in 1885, as a result from uh, overwork and stress with this... Uh, you know invention all the farm press that he's doing stuff he's creating he has a mental breakdown and uh decides after a little while that he's just going to change his work so he starts doing all these different things and uh the following year he goes to texas to begin working with developers in fort worth to build a new community called riverside <laughs> um and uh, march uh 15th 1887 marjorie was born and she was the only child that C.W. and Ella had together. So he's back and forth between Illinois and, uh, I'm sorry, in Texas. Mm-hmm. And uh, by 1888, he'd begun a development development of his own in, Fort, in the Fort Worth area on 200 acres. Um, for the next few years, he was working on this, but in 1891... He has another breakdown for the same reason. Like, this guy overworks himself, like, all the time. Like, stresses out. And uh, Ella is always there for him, right? Caring for him, yeah. And remember this. So, so after this breakdown, he begins searching for a cure for what's wrong with him. Like, why he keeps having these issues. A cure for what ails him? (laughs) Yeah, a cure. Like, you know, maybe he's just working too much. But he's looking for it, and he eventually takes this big interest in digestion and the benefits that digestion has, okay? so Interesting. It was big around this time for that, like, that was when a lot of things were getting going, so. Digestion especially. Yeah, it was, we, it had just begun. <laughs> um, so after traveling around the world, really looking for help in these things, uh, he reaches uh, the Battle Creek Sanitarium in Mi- Michigan. And Battle Creek Sanitarium was operated by this guy named John Harvey Kellogg, um, <laughs> whose, was whose brother was Will Keith Kellogg. He's getting and ready to invent the raisin. He's the he's the founder of Kellogg, the Kellogg Company. So, obviously, we know what they do. And John was uh, using granola, grains, cereals, that kind of stuff to help cure diseases, quote unquote. And uh, while uh, C.W. was there. It's alleged that uh, he stole several of John's recipes, including uh, one was called Caramel Coffee Cereal, which became post-postum, Corn Flakes, which became Toasties, post-Toasties, and Malted Nuts, which later became Grape Nuts. So they're they're, they're basically the same recipe. I don't know. Just the same amount of grains going into... (laughs) squares because yeah, i can't imagine they were all that sweetened back then if at all and probably like, yeah, no these were yeah, probably man. like chewing on bales of hay yeah, and stuff, you know, with some seeds in there it was actually good for you probably <clears throat> it probably did help clear yeah, you out yeah. um in 1895 post leaves and f- founds a company called postum cereal company and his first product is 
called the Postum Cereal Beverage, which is a uh, caffeine-free powdered roasted grain beverage. <laughs> Yum. <laughs> it sounds delicious. I mean, yeah. Uh, it was like a coffee alternative. I guess I'm sure it gets you going just like coffee does. Well, I mean, it's definitely going to get you some energy, but... Get you going the yeah, other way, too. He, I mean, remember, he's dealing with digestion is what he's thinking is like the cure. Like, this is a big thing. People thought that that was the cure <clears> for everything. You could just shit it out of your body, right? Or bleed it out of your body. I mean, I guess caffeine helps or you to poo as poke well. a hole in your head and seep it out of your head to get the, <laughs> right. the demons yeah, you out. Just you know, let remember, it leak out. you know, it's just the eighteen hundred, early nineteen hundreds, like late the eighteen scaries. That's yeah. why it was so scary because everybody's poking themselves with stuff <laughs> just, to bleed. Everything's just coming just, out all the time. It's like, oh, just bleed it; it'll be fine. Um, and uh, Post's first uh, breakfast cereal premieres in eighteen ninety seven. And it's named Grape Nuts uh, because of the fruity aroma that uh, he noticed when the manufacturing process and the nutty crunch of the f- finished product. So, Grape Nuts. Uh, 1904, he follows up the Grape Nuts label with a brand of cornflakes, which at first was called Elijah's Manna. And uh, <laughs> no, thank you. was re- renamed in 1908 to Post Toasties. Oh, Elijah's Manna. The the British government refused to allow him to sell this cereal in the United Kingdom using the name Elijah's Manna, claiming that it was sacrilegious. So that was one of the reasons oh, wow. that they changed the name to Post Toasties. And that was 1908. I mean, Post Toasties is a much better name for it. I've I got to say. It's even, a little bit more catchy now. Yeah, even today, it's a better name than a lot of things, really. But. In 1904, 1908 era, like people were, Elijah's Manna would probably sell better. Well, I mean, <coughs> excuse you know, me, that's a good point. Yeah, I mean, it's not woke or anything. <laughs> Elijah's man. <laughs> yeah, post toasties is a much better way to go, I think. Uh, you know, I'm no businessman. <laughs> businessman. But uh, uh, he was, so the business is growing and growing. Yeah. So when does he invent the raisin? <laughs> not yet. Okay. He just got the great nuts. <laughs> um, he's spending less and less time <clears throat> with Ella. <clears throat> as his business is growing Uh-oh. obviously this guy's a workaholic right uh in 1904 he separates from her and in 19 in november of that same year he married his 27 year old secretary layla young oh, who at that point L. was half his age so he was 54 at the time oh. which is interesting that he wasn't spending any time with uh ella and he was probably spending time a couple with months layla. after he gets divorced he yeah. gets married to the secretary. I wonder what he was really doing, you know. Yeah, the secretary. Apparently, yeah. <laughs> uh, previous to getting married, though, CW had hired Layla to be a travel companion for Marjorie. But Marjorie wasn't dumb, and she figured this out. And uh, she figured out it was just a ruse to get them to be closer so she would accept her more as the new mom kind of thing, you know. Right. And because of this... Marjorie deeply resented Layla. So I didn't say much. She seemed to really love and be affectionate for her father, which I would think that he'd be more the person to be mad at than the woman that he was trying to do yeah, it for. But it's a man's world. Uh, anyway, so <laughs> that's uh, Chris's bumper sticker on the back of his car. Uh, in 1906, he had a, he had started to make a ton of money, and uh, I'm just he, stating facts. He invested some of this money into a town called Post City. Uh-oh. Which is now the county seat for Garza County, Texas. Oh, with many a raisin bush on every I corner. I don't know. I doubt, because this, this town seemed like it probably sucked, because they didn't have brothels, no alcohol, nothing. Like, hmm. 
No raisins. Definitely not raisins. And then Texas raisins. Texas raisins. Uh, I did have a newspaper that had a great name, though. It was called the Post City Post. <laughs> that is good. <laughs> it's so the, it's there, and you don't even realize it until you see it. You're, oh, yeah. No, that's got a magic to it that, that is <laughs> it's hard to come by, really, the Post City Post. So Post oh. Postum Company keeps growing, and uh, CW gets sicker and unhealthier so the serial isn't working (laughs) by the end of 1913 he canceled all public appearances Uh, march of 1914 he was rushed by train from california to rochester (laughs) again (laughs) that's what it said in the article by train from california to rochester rochester minnesota not not (laughs) but and he had he was going to have surgery done on his appendix by these two like the best surgeons in the world at the time oh boy um and then i have a zach fact here which is uh <laughs> cw had made assertions that grape nuts would help to cure appendicitis and was even sued over this he was fined but appealed and won but after that postum ads stopped making such claims okay buddy. but funny enough he thought it would help with the, they would claim about his appendix how it would help your appendix but he ended up getting that surgery because of his he thought it was his, his appendix oh okay so yeah um, he he, was, he might have been a snake oil kind of guy. Right. Know? Yeah, sounds like it. Uh, after a successful surgery, he returned to Santa Barbara, which is where he was living at the time, but without any relief from these lifelong stomach pains and his other issues, which, I mean, he's probably got ulcers and all sorts of stuff. Oh, man. Sounds like he, yeah. yeah. On May 14th, 1914, <clears throat> CW shot himself, and uh, he was 59. Mm. Must have been in some pain. Probably. So now we're going to go back to Marjorie. The letter M is now is back in the story here. So uh, while she was growing up, she was traveling. She learned a lot about design, interior decorating, entertaining, as well as developing interests in history and art. So, I mean, she was, grew up pretty well off. Right. They could just go wherever they wanted, right? Mm-hmm. Um, she had also learned how all the machinery worked in her father's factories, learned his business philosophies, and even learned the names of every employee in the entire corporation. Oh, wow. So she was definitely, like, knew what she was going to try to do. So when CW died, she became the sole inheritor of the company because she was their only child and the entire estate. At the time, remember this is, what, 1914, uh, the time the entire company and estate was worth $20 million. Oh, wow. Which is about 595 million dollars today wow making her one of the richest women in the world and at the time the richest woman in the united states ever uh for a long time she continued to be so that's a lot of money 20 million Mm dollars in the teens did she fund world war one at least our part of it well you're getting ahead of things (laughs) i mean we're almost there for 1914 it's a little early Think of another big war that comes up, and she does have something to do with that. Anyways, she started it. Around the time of her parents' divorce, uh, Marjorie had attended Mount Vernon Seminary and College, which is now George Washington University's Mount Vernon campus in Washington, D.C. She continued a close relationship with this university throughout her life. I mean, she was a sorority mother, fraternity mother for years and years. Uh, in 1905, she married Edward Bennett Close, and she began to run the company. Uh, at the at this time, it was pretty rare to have a woman running the country, company. Mm-hmm. 
1914 and a woman running a multi-million dollar company so it's pretty amazing oh, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, young too so shoot, it's it's rare these days in fact right uh edward was a uh, investment banker sorry from connecticut and the two of them had two daughters they were named adelaide brevort close and eleanor post close fancy names post close uh, after 14 years of marriage, Marjorie and Edward divorced. Uh, Zach cracked again. <laughs> Edward remarried, and through, it's like and a, through that marriage... It's a daily he, double. <laughs> her first husband remarried after they divorced, and he became a uh, paternal grandfather to Glenn Close. Oh, wow. So, they're oh, all like intertwined. I mean, you said Close, and immediately I thought Glenn Close. But, yeah. <laughs> In 1920, Marjorie married a financier, which I don't even understand how that's a job. I'm just paid to do things. <laughs> and his name was Edward Francis Hutton. And I said, it's pretty easy to remember your dude's name if you just keep marrying the guy with the same name. So the first two husbands were both named Edward. By 1923, new Edward is what I call him. Edward three. Edward two. Oh, okay. Uh, he became the chairman of the board of Postum Cereal Company, and they had a daughter named Nadinia Marjorie Hutton. Hmm. And she's better known as Dina Merrill, who was in a ton of movies, including uh, True Colors, The Player, Shade, and the second worst sequel of all time, Caddyshack 2. Oh, she was in Caddyshack yeah. 2. Wow, there was a big gap, I imagine, uh, between that movie and her previous movie she was in i mean she was on shows like bonanza okay alfred hitchcock hour the love boat okay. roseanne and the nanny she died in 2017 i think her last movie credit was like 2009 oh wow right. so she was still Busy. active you've seen her if you've seen some of she was in a lot of other things but yeah, you've probably yeah, sure seen, I've seen her. her i'm sure i've seen her. so anyway back to marjorie uh during her second marriage with edward number two they began to really grow the company, expanding the varieties of things they produced and buying up other brands as well. So they curved their their policy was like buy up things, build the company, get the whole thing a conglomerate. You know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, operate, control the entire process. Yeah. Situation. Some of the products that they bought up during this time were Hellman's mayonnaise, Jello, Baker's chocolate, and Maxwell House. So wow, like rule the kitchen. Yeah, and it. it since the grow the company was growing and it was like changing their portfolio so to speak they decided to uh change the name to general foods corporation well, that's that was to show they were more than just cereals you basic know? So, name that's uh basically covers it yeah uh in 1929 while she's <clears throat> dining on her 164 three masted 164 foot i'm sorry three masted yacht named the sea cloud at the time, it was the pr world's largest private yacht. Wow. And this is like a s sailboat yacht. Uh, she was eating some frozen goose that was, a at that time, a new invent innovation created by a guy named Clarence Birdseye. Oh, the frozen foods, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, Birdseye. Uh, yeah. She was so impressed with this that she wanted to buy his company. This is like History Channel. This is, this is good she, uh, like this. She and Edward completely disagreed on this. He he just didn't see it right yeah, just, i mean i can imagine a lot of people people didn't, didn't even have it. freezers then <laughs> right yeah exactly but she had more obviously had more stake as the ownership than he did right so she just outvoted him and decided to buy it anyway um I mean, she probably bought, a good move she bought the entire thing remember 1923 
1929, I'm sorry. She paid $23.5 million for that company in 1929. Wow. That's $350 million today. Right. This was a huge, this could have ruined the entire company. That's how big of a thing it was. Yeah. But she knew what she was doing because she basically created what we know as the frozen food section. <laughs> right. Uh, she, she, when, when stores bought her product, she brought freezers to put the things in because a lot of places didn't have oh, right. any freezers at all. Yeah. She even installed electricity into some of these places wow. to get it to where they could get the frozen foods in. And then people started getting them in their homes and, you know, yeah, cookies especially to do the after, too. especially yeah. after, after World War II, like that's a big, huge business. It's like yeah. easily pays for itself. So by the end of the by the mid thirties, Edward and Marjorie, but their marriage becomes bad. They're business partners in this giant corporation, and the, yeah. you know, I'm sure that there was a lot of things. Yeah, because uh, mixing business and pleasure. Well, you know, there wasn't some pleasure because Edward was having an affair with a woman <laughs> half his age. No, that's a <clears throat> a common thing. Layla was her name, right? <laughs> right. Uh, no, I don't know what her name was, yeah. but. Uh, she, Marjorie though, had also been developing a relationship with a guy named Joseph E. Davies, who was a DC lawyer. I'm sure it was the lawyer for the company. Did he go by Jed? No, no but he could have. <laughs> they, uh, a few weeks after Marjorie and, uh, Edward divorced, Joseph married Marjorie. So just a few weeks. Uh, Davies was the American ambassador to the Soviet Union from 1937 to 1938. So he's a pretty successful guy yeah. himself. They were married for 20 years when they divorced, and in 1958 she married her fourth and final husband, who was a... This is, this is from the Wikipedia page about this guy. He was a wealthy P Pittsburgh businessman and former master of foxhounds of the Rolling Rock Hunt Club. <laughs> he was named Herbert A. May. Uh, mm -hmm. Six years later, they were divorced, and then she was single the rest of her life. Okay, so there you go. Um, Marjorie was a major philanthropist. This was back when rich people actually did things for all of civil society. Yeah, I mean, you know, you still hear, some. Yeah, but I mean, you know, you hear like Rockefeller Plaza. You don't realize that like the Rockefellers donated like money to build these things, and not all, not necessarily that, but I mean. You'll find out that how she's done a lot of things because she funded a U.S. Army hospital during World War One, and was an awarded the French Called Legion. Of, <laughs> that's not even it yet. So she was awarded the French Legion of Honor, which is the highest French order of merit, civil or military. So she's uh, 1929. She financed and personally supervised the Salvation Army feeding station in New York, and that was all during the Great Depression. So she knew that she had. Yeah, a lot of money, but she could right. help. Uh, she donated the cost of the Boy Scout headquarters in Washington and was later given the Silver Fawn Award. I think it's the biggest award that a non-Boy Scout can get because of her service. She donated over $100,000 to the National Cultural Center in D.C. that would later become the JFK Center for the Performing Arts. Uh, $100,000 to the National Symphony for free concerts that led to the beginning of Music for Young America concerts. So she definitely was out there doing things and helping other people right. while being exorbitantly rich. 
Uh, and during the time she was married to Joseph Davies, she had built her European art collection. And because of his connections, she also became a Russophile, which means she collected Russian art. Uh, maybe Russells. She collected uh, <laughs> Russells. There you go. <laughs> Russells. She it, may not the, have the gotten The terriers married. and the people. Yeah, the terriers and the people. She liked herself a good young Russell. And Stover. <laughs> the chocolates. <laughs> yeah. Um, she collected many russian pieces at this time that were pretty valuable because stalin was helping to build up the country building the country up for world war ii so she was buying discounted pieces that may or may not have been stolen by from the uh, previous occupants of their government yeah or their monarchy or whatever it was um and many of the uh things that she bought in this time are still in collections and displayed in museums throughout the world so she would she was really into jewelry furniture art it didn't really matter she just liked she fancy liked it all. things yeah. right uh she left the smithsonian some of her jewelry collection and it's displayed in the harry winston exhibit okay so this includes a napoleon diamond necklace which is 263 carats oh, wow. of diamonds with 52 diamonds in there uh, the Marie Louise Diadem, which is a crown with turquoise and diamonds. Hmm. Um, Marie turquoise Antoinette diamond, diamond earrings, which are 30 carat heart shaped blue diamonds, huh. rings, necklaces, and a necklace that, that once belonged to uh, Maximilian, the former Mexican emperor. Uh, okay. Uh, she also <laughs> had a bigger collection that was, it was hard to collect. Most people could never collect this because she collected mansions. <laughs> of course she did. Uh, she died on September 12th in 1973 in Washington, D.C. at her Hillwood estate. Hillwood now operates as a private museum since post-death and displays her French and Russian art collection featuring <laughs> Fabergé eggs, Sevres porcelain, French furniture, furniture, sorry, tapestries, and paintings. In the house, too, is a chandelier that's from the Catherine Palace in Pushkin, Russia. Hmm. And it's a, that hangs in the breakfast nook. <laughs> wow. Uh, the library of this house, wind, the window frames the uh, Washington Monument. Huh. So it's pretty close to wow. that whole area. It's uh, 25 acres right there. Hmm. And it has one of the best orchid collections in the world. So oh, Orchids are nice. And they, uh, she had another house called Hillwood, and it was in Long Island. And in 1951, she sold it to uh, the, let's see, Long Island University, and she sold it dirt cheap to them so they could use the property, and it's become the LIU Post. <laughs> and it's now called the Winnick House and used for campus administration, academics, and the event space. So that's how big this house was. Could uh, do all that stuff. Yeah, that's insane. Uh, when she was married to Edward II... They had purchased a mansion on Fifth Avenue on Millionaire's Row in Manhattan. So there's some M's for you. <laughs> uh, soon after they bought it, and as the city was growing, the traffic was getting bad, and then the cars were starting to be around, and Marjorie was having problems with migraines from the sound and all the fumes. So a developer came and said, we want to buy the property. They said, okay, you buy it, but I want my mansion on top of this building you're going to build because they were building a 14-story apartment building hmm. so they agreed and uh they had to build the exact replica of this mansion that used to be there on the roof of this 14 
story apartment building <laughs> in exchange for they sold they bought the property from her and then she paid them seventy five thousand dollars a year in, in rent oh wow uh the wow. first it was the first penthouse in new york and had 54 rooms wow 12 fireplaces a cold storage room for flowers and furs 17 modern bathrooms and a dining room that could seat 125 and it also had clear views of uh central park and all the traffic was way down below so she was better off had a staff of 70 wow and uh, after 15 years the lease agreement was complete and marjorie moved out of this house the mansion was uh divided into a triplex and uh, at one point ralph lauren owned owned one of those Hmm. of the triplex it's a i think it's it's still there perhaps you mean ralph lauren that's right sorry (laughs) ralph and lauren both of them bought it ralph and lauren Okay, so we're getting into this. There's going to be a couple of things that are kind of like in today times because she's still kind of today you, times. There's still things that are happening involving Marjorie, not necessarily her, but her properties. Because Camp Top Ridge is in uh, Upper St. Regis Lake, New York. It's a rustic retreat, <laughs> and it's on 300 acres, 68 buildings. Wow. Uh, it was originally built in 1923, and she bought it and was like. Originally, you could only get there by boat or float plane. Wow. Uh, it, you'd have to use a funicular to get up to the main building, which is like a tram system, uh-huh. counterweights and stuff. That was going to be like arm floaties. <laughs> there you go. Um, they used to fill those with like beans and stuff back in the day, so it didn't really work as good. <laughs> Many of the original furnishings are still in this house, including a large collection of Indian artifacts that were donated... And, and some of those were also donated to the Smithsonian. She left this property to the state of New York hmm. so they could do <clears throat> do what they wanted, you know, hopefully to make something. No, nope, they sold off most of the buildings. And the rest of the land that that wasn't on was do- was added to the Forest Preserve, the Adirondack Forest Preserve. So that's, I mean, they sold off all the buildings. Yeah. Uh, they probably sold off the properties because it was too expensive for the upkeep and the money she left wasn't being, going, to, going to be enough. And we'll see that again soon. So, uh, here's another Zach fact for you. The property is now owned by somebody named Harlan Crow, which his name has come out recently with a ProPublica report that for a week every summer, the past two decades, uh, POS Clarence Thomas stays at Camp Top Ridge. Hmm. Bonus fact. One of the decorations at the lodge by Sher- is a photorealistic painting of Sharif Tarabay of Thomas Crow, lawyers Peter Rutledge, Leonard Leo, and uh, Mark Paletta, who were both involved with shady organizations. Right. Um, they're just chilling in Adirond- Adirondack chairs, and like it's just a weird picture to have like mounted on the wall, just a bunch <laughs> right. of like old rich guys sitting around in Adirondack chairs, or whatever. And uh, the most famous house that Marjorie ever built was built in the 20s at a cost of $7 million, which is about $118 million today. Uh, During World War II, this house was converted to help with convalescing soldiers, and at one point, she even flew in the entire Ringling Brothers Circus to perform at this this place. Wow. And the translation of this house is uh, Sea to Lake. (laughs) Most people know it now as uh, Mar-a-Lago. And it's a 126 rooms ha- room house on 17 acres in Palm Beach. 
She bequeathed the mansion to the National Park Service after her death, hoping it could use for, be used for state visits or as a winter White House. <laughs> and the cost of maintaining the property exceeded the funds she left, and because it was difficult to secure the facility, <laughs> it was returned to the Post Foundation in 1981, and then in 1984 it was sold and turned into a swamp resort. <laughs> okay, so... Still is. Exactly. <laughs> uh, at... GW, George Washington University's special collections research, there's all sorts of correspondence with her, personal papers of her and her father, and there's also some of her stuff at University of Michigan's Bentley Historical Library. Uh, after she had died, she left her estate to her three daughters, and on her deathbed, the doctor tried to marry her, but was unable to, and I'm sure it was completely because the guy was in love. <laughs> yeah. Uh, General Foods Corporation was sold to Philip Morris in the 1980s and eventually merged with Kraft, and now I think they're owned by, like, BlackRock or something. Hmm. Allegedly. So that's uh, Marjorie Merriweather Post. So she's a big money. Badass lady that, you know, kind of, like, changed the world, really, if you think about it. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Frozen Foods really boomed because of her like foresight in the whole thing that everybody else kind of thought yeah. she was crazy every so. time you eat a frozen pizza think marjorie post there you go yeah she Thanks, was a nice Marge. person too like that was back like i said it was back in the day when <clears throat> when rich people would do things besides just like i'm gonna build my 33rd ship <laughs> right. and not that she didn't have a bunch of houses and stuff but she right. also did other things and left a lot of her stuff for for people to enjoy mm-hmm. you, know, you can go see a lot of her collections all over the place yeah so. left them to the public essentially yeah yeah yeah, yeah. so well, um, so, yeah. What's nice. your letter M? My letter M um, is uh, something called the Montauk Project. So we're mm. going back to New York. You just huh. we spent some time in New York with uh, Marjorie Post. Um, but yeah, this takes place. Uh, well, <clears throat> well, we're going to start at a place uh, that is referred to as Camp Hero in uh, in Montauk in uh, on Long Island, New York. Okay. So uh, let's see. Read a little bit about Camp Hero. This is from Wikipedia. Montauk Air Force Station was a U.S. military base at Montauk Point on the eastern tip of Long Island, New York. So we're going to do a little history in my story as well. But then it gets crazy. It was decommissioned in 1981 and is now owned by the New York State Office of Parks, Recreation, Historic Preservation as Camp Hero State Park. So, Montauk Lighthouse was first authorized in 1792, and part of its mission was to keep a lookout for British ships sailing for New York or Boston, and thus uh, became the first military installation at Montauk. So, it's been a, a military place since 1792. They've been Montauking it a while. They've been Montauking it quite a while. Okay. But, uh, but we're going to jump quite a bit ahead. Um, and uh, during World War II, it's still kind of serving the same purpose. Um, with uh, German U-boats threatening the East Coast and Long Island, Montauk again was considered a likely invasion point. In 1942, the U.S. Army upgraded Fort Hero and renamed it Camp Hero. The camp was a self-contained town with recreational facilities, barracks, and its own power station. So I was already calling it Camp Hero, but 
before that. Now it's officially. Now it's officially Camp Hero. It uh, grew to 278 acres and included four surplus 16-inch naval rifles, originally intended for battleships. So it was uh, ready to wow. blow up some shit if okay. it had to. Yeah. Installed as uh, they were installed as coastal artillery pieces in two concrete bunkers. These batteries rendered obsolete almost all previous heavy guns in the harbor defenses of Long Island Sound. A two-gun six-inch battery um, was also built. A large quote fire control center was built next to the lighthouse to direct the artillery and anti-aircraft guns. Other armaments included quadruple um, 50 caliber machine guns for low altitude defense and 90 millimeter and 120 millimeter anti-aircraft guns. Wow! So it was ready to to take care of take, some shit. Yeah, had to. <laughs> so um. Served its purpose in World War II, uh, you know, throughout the Cold War, or not throughout, but early in the Cold War, uh, December 1960, um, the large high-power ANFPS-35 radar became operational at Montauk. Uh, the reflector on it was 126 feet long and 38 feet tall, and it weighed 40 tons. Um, it was supposedly only the second one ever built at the time. It was able to detect airborne objects as objects at distances of well over 200 miles. So, wow. so, yeah, again, defending, you know, from, well, Russia. And the first thing time. they sent on it was like a, a sound recording of a cat. <laughs> yeah, of a, of a cat chasing a bell. Oh, or something. Yeah. It also used, quote, mm-hmm. frequency diversity technology, making it resistant to electronic countermeasures. Wow. So, like, pretty uh, high-tech things going on. Uh, um, it was so powerful that it disrupted local TV and radio broadcasts and had to be shut down several times and recalibrated. Uh, the entire Montauk installation was shut down on January 31st of 1981, so it was there, you know, for quite a while. Um, during the 70s, I think that it was kind of on its way out, but by 1981... We're out of here. We're out of here. Um, considering how big uh, the tower was, the radar tower, it was, quote, abandoned in place with um, all the motors and electronics removed, and uh, now just kind of blows in the wind, like, you know, points in different directions because it can kind of be blown by the wind. Huh. Um, a ground air transmitter. <laughs> right, Yeah. A ground air transmitter receiver facility uh, remained in uh, service to direct military aircraft operating within the region. So it's still a region that requires a lot of, uh, you know, directing of military aircraft and whatnot. Um, so where the hell am I going with this? What is the Montauk Project? So um, the Montauk Project is a conspiracy theory that alleges there were a series of United States government projects conducted at Camp Hero or Montauk Air Force Station in Montauk, New York, for the purpose of developing psychological warfare techniques and exotic research, including time travel. The story of the Montauk Project originated in the Montauk Montauk Project series of books by Preston Nichols. In these books, he discusses experiments which include time travel, mind control, and extraterrestrial, quote, involvement. <laughs> um, okay. So you always, you always find these. <clears throat> yeah, yeah, yeah. This one I will say ahead of time. I, I don't go too much into the extraterrestrial involvement. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, an actual event uh, mentioned in uh, the first book of this series is something called the Philadelphia Experiment. You ever heard of it? I might have, but I mean, I'd always heard of it, and just in passing. Once I learned, this could have been a hey. Guess what? I just found out. Uh, yeah, I messed that up, but uh, it was completely a different thing than I thought it was. <laughs> so okay. Here in a little bit, we'll find out about it. But um, so it mentioned uh, the Philadelphia experiment and um, the ways that 
it uh, what was learned through the Philadelphia experiment was used in the Montauk project. Um, it doesn't take place in Montauk because, well, it takes place in Philadelphia. Um, <clears throat> to tell you a little bit about it, um, from military.com, there was an article called uh, This is the Truth Behind World War II's Creepy Philadelphia Experiment. Um, there was a man named Carl Allen who went by the pseudonym uh, Carlos Miguel Allende, and he started this whole thing um, in 1956 when he sent a series of letters to uh, a man named Morris Jessup who had written a book called The Case for the UFO, in which he argued that unidentified flying objects merit further study. Um, Jessup apparently included text about unified field theory because this is what Allende latched onto for his correspondences. In the 1950s, unified, unified field theory um, uh, was a theory put forth by Albert Einstein where he was, uh, his idea was uh, kind of unifying his theory of relativity uh, with electromagnetism. So uh, and Allende claimed to have been taught by Einstein himself and could prove the unified field theory based on events he had witnessed on October 28, 1943. Allende claimed that he saw the uh, SS Eldridge disappear from the Philadelphia Naval Yard, and he further insisted that the U.S. military had conducted what he called the Philadelphia Experiment and was trying to cover it up. Um, Jessup, the guy who wrote the book about um, UFOs, was then contacted by the Navy's Office of Naval Research, which had received a package containing Jessup's book with annotations claiming that extraterrestrial technology allowed the U.S. government to make breakthroughs in unified field theory. Um, that's one of the weirdest details that they were to get this book. Uh, Allende, or Carl Allen, had sent them this book with all of these annotations. They were designed to look like they were written by lots of different people kind of sharing this book so all the margins were lined up and like different handwriting was used for uh, for each of them but um according to an article for the journal of scientific exploration um there's a guy named um i forgot to put his first name i think it's alberto valet i've talked about him before when i've talked about ufos but um according to an article he wrote jessup became obsessed with allende's revelations um and all the letters and all the margin notes and uh he took his own life in 1959 because he was so like he's being driven crazy by allende like wow. hounding him about this stuff it wasn't until 1980 that proof of allende's forgery was made available so he like had created the whole thing <laughs> oh, jeez. Yeah. Inexplica inexplicably, two ONR officers had 127 copies of the annotated text printed and privately distributed by the military contractor Varro Manufacturing, giving wings to Allende's story long after Jessup's death. So a lot of this whole Philadelphia experiment thing came from, well, people kept telling the story, basically. Right. That huh. the... Uh, so the general synopsis of the Philadelphia experiment, because that was kind of a vague sort of talking about it. Um, this was on Wikipedia, and Wikipedia um, said before this general synopsis that it's kind of a combination of, well, I'll just read the notes. Several different and sometimes contradictory versions of the alleged experiment have circulated over the years. The following synopsis recounts key story points common to most accounts. So uh, like I was telling you before we were recording, like this one was kind of easy to find stuff on but a lot of it's just bullshit <laughs> right <laughs> and so like to, to get to the like the actual things that were you know actually alleged then 
this is kind of Wikipedia trying to do that for us. But uh, according to some accounts, unspecified researchers thought that some version of Einstein's unified field theory would enable using large electrical generators to bend light around an object via refraction so that the object became completely invisible. The Navy regarded this as having military value. No shit. Right. Um, another unattributed version of the story proposes that researchers were preparing magnetic and gravitational measurements of the seafloor to detect anomalies supposedly based on Einstein's attempts to understand gravity. In this version, there were also uh, related secret experiments in Nazi Germany to find anti-gravity. There are no reliable attributable accounts, but in most accounts of the supposed experiment, the USS Eldridge was fitted with the required equipment at the Philadelphia Naval Shipyard in 1943. One test resulted in the Eldridge being rendered nearly invisible with some witnesses reporting a greenish fog appearing in its place. Crew members complained of severe nausea afterwards. Also, reportedly, when the ship reappeared, some sailors were embedded in the metal structures of the ship. So, like, they were, you know, it kind of moved while it was teleporting or whatever. Yeah, wow. When they came back, they were stuck in the walls. and um, Like being on a Gravitron. <laughs> right, yeah. One sailor ended up on a deck level below where he began and his hand embedded in the steel hull of the ship, as well as some sailors who went completely quote, completely bananas. There is also a claim the experiment was altered after that point at the request of the Navy, limiting it to creating a stealth technology that would render the USS Eldridge invisible to radar. None of the allegations have been independently substantiated. Um, Of course, the Navy has denied it. (laughs) And I think I have a quote in here somewhere where... They actually do not. Um, other versions of the story give uh, the date of the experiment as October 28, 1943. In this version, the Eldridge not only became invisible, but disappeared from the area and teleported to Norfolk, Virginia, over 200 miles away. It is claimed that the Eldridge sat for some time in view of men aboard the SS Andrew Forsyth. 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 <laughs> it's F-U-R-U-S-E-T-H. Forsyth. Whereupon the Eldridge vanished and then reappeared in Philadelphia at the site it had originally occupied. Many versions of the tale include descriptions of the serious side effects for the crew. Some crew members said to have been physically fused to bulkheads, while others suffered mental disorders. Some rematerialized inside out, and others even vanished. Hmm. (laughs) Seems dubious. It is also claimed that the ship's crew may have been subjected to brainwashing to maintain the secrecy of the experiment. Of course, that's what you have to do (laughs) on all of these. You have to use your little (laughs) magic men in black pen. Yeah. So we're still talking about Philadelphia experiment, but uh, the Montauk experiment often gets uh, mixed up and combined with the Philadelphia experiment because, well, it's mentioned, you know, in the original book talking about what the Montauk uh, project was. And so, again, apparently all of the technological advances that were learned from whatever weird things they were doing to do the Philadelphia experiment were used later on in these experiments that that Montauk is doing. Um, Personnel at the 4th Naval District have a... And this is... um, the Navy claims that there's a misunderstanding of, um, of the naval experiments that were actually going on because there were experiments going on. Um, and the uh, 4th Naval District have suggested that the alleged event was a misunderstanding of routine research during World War II at the Philadelphia Naval Shipyard. One theory is that the foundation for the apocryphal stories arose from degaussing experiments experiments which have the effect of making a ship undetectable or invisible to magnetic minds. Um, degaussing, uh, this is a Zach fact, 
<laughs> All right. Degaussing is the process of decreasing or eliminating a remnant magnetic field. It is named after the Gauss, a unit of magnetism, which in turn was named after Carl Frederick Gauss. Hmm. So, yeah, they're, um, they are kind of trying to make it invisible by demagnetizing it to radar. So, like, it's not visible. And lines, yeah. yeah, So they would refer to it as invisible. (laughs) Um, Another possible origin of the stories about levitation, teleportation, and effects on human crew might be attributed to experiments with the generating plant of the destroyer USS Timmerman, wherein a higher-frequency generator produced corona discharges, although none of the crew reported suffering effects from the experiment. And that's, uh, like, electrically charged, like, area around something that, is electric, basically. <laughs> boogie, boogie, boogie. <laughs> exactly. Um, observers have argued that it is inappropriate to grant credence to an unusual story promoted by one individual in the absence of corroborating evidence. Robert Gorman wrote in Fate magazine in 1980 that Carlos Allende slash Carl Allen, who is said to have corresponded with Jessup, the guy who wrote that alien book that killed himself, was Carl Meredith Allen of New Kensington, Pennsylvania, who had an established history of psychiatric illness and who may have fabricated the primary history of the experiment as a result of his mental illness. Gorman, the guy who wrote that article, later realized that Allen was actually a family friend and a creative and imaginative loner sending bizarre writings and claims. Well, that's different than today. You're supposed to only take advice or, like, information from a guy that he's the only one telling you that. And so you've got to listen to that. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. How how times have changed. This was (laughs) pre-internet. So um, some claim that there are timeline inconsistencies, which uh, sounds about right, given uh, what we're learning about Carl Allen. But uh, the USS Eldridge was not even commissioned until August 27th, 1943, and it remained in port in New York City until September of 1943. The October experiment allegedly took place while the ship was on its first shakedown cruise in the Bahamas, although proponents of the story claim that the ship's logs might have been falsified or else still be classified. An alternative, of course, there's always, right? you know, a, I mean, it's possible, sure. And there's but, always yeah. a little doggy door <laughs> off to the side of every doggy door, yeah. you know. An alternative explanation is that the USS Hammond was actually used rather than the USS Eldridge as it arrived in the shipyard on October 20th, 1943. The Office of Naval Research, or ONR, stated in September 1996 that they have, quote, never conducted investigations on radar and visibility, either in 1943 or at any other time. They also pointed out that the ONR was not established until 1946. <laughs> so. <laughs> so some guy was making it up and didn't get his numbers right. right. A reunion of Navy veterans who had served aboard USS Eldridge told a Philadelphia newspaper in April 99, 1999 that their ship had never made port in Philadelphia. Further evidence discounting the Philadelphia experiment timeline comes from the Eldridge's complete World War II action report, including the remarks section of the 1943 deck log available on microfilm. (laughs) Wow. Yep. Alternative explanations, then. Um, Researcher Jacques Vallée um, describes a procedure on board USS Ingstrom, which was docked alongside the Eldridge in 1943. The operation involved the generation of a powerful mag electromagnetic field on board in order to degauss it with the goal of rendering the ship undetectable or, quote, invisible to magnetically fused undersea mines and torpedoes. The Royal Navy and other navies were already using it uh, widely during World War II. Uh, British ships of the era often included such degaussing systems built into the upper decks. Um, like I said, still used today. Uh, Valet speculates that accounts of the USS Ingstrom's degaussing might have been garbled and confabulated in subsequent retellings, thus... You get stories of weird things happening on board yeah. the Eldridge. 
Um, Valet uh, also cites a veteran who served on board USS Engstrom and who suggests it might have traveled from Philadelphia to Norfolk and back again in a single day at a time when merchant ships could not by use of the Chesapeake and Delaware Canal and Chesapeake Bay, which at that time was open only to naval vessels. So it was actually being used to keep them safe from the open sea. They could way more quickly use that route. And so perhaps the story got confabulated again, and it's like, sure, it was quick, but it didn't just disappear and reappear. Right. Like, But it wasn't even there at the time anyway. So, wait. <laughs> this was in the 40s, right? Yeah. yeah, the 40s, yeah, 1943. The same veteran claims to be the man that Allende witnessed disappearing at a bar. I don't think it was mentioned yet in my notes, but uh, and the Allende had claimed there was like a group of men who apparently were aboard the Eldridge who... Uh, all one night disappeared from a bar, I guess, because of whatever effects. But that happens all the time at bars. People disappear. Well, that's what he, uh, this guy claims that when a fight broke out, friendly barmaids whisked him out of the bar before the police arrived because he was underage. They then covered for him by claiming that he had disappeared. Oh, okay. Yep. Yeah, if fight breaks out, everybody's disappearing. (laughs) Right. So that's the Philadelphia experiment. Um, Well, I think... If it went to Philadelphia, it was involved with Philadelphia, then they they could tell if there were, if it actually happened, because there'd be punch marks on the sides, because those people (laughs) in Philadelphia would have just been punching that boat for being in the water or something. (laughs) Just mad. Yeah. (laughs) Hey, it's Santa Claus. Throw rocks at him. (laughs) Indeed. Indeed. Let me take a drink. All right. Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. Thirsty Chris. All right. Um, So, the Montauk Project. What I'm here to talk about. Stories um, have circulated since the early 80s, um, and according to, again, researcher Jacques Vallée, the Montauk experiment stories seem to have originated with the highly questionable account of Preston Nichols, who I already mentioned, um, and Al Bielik, who both claim to have recovered repressed memories of their own involvement. So this is kind of what the books are about. Okay. Uh, Preston Nichols claims that he was periodically abducted to continue his participation against his will. Nichols, born May 24th, 1946, on Long Island, New York, claims to have degrees in parapsychology, psychology, and electrical engineering. Um, it said claims to have those? <laughs> that's what it says. <laughs> okay. Um, and well, I claim to be a neurosurgeon. Right. So. And I hadn't mentioned yet, uh, the Montauk Project is alleged to have uh, occurred between 1971 and 1983. So this is far removed from the okay. Philadelphia Experiment timeline. So, like, but okay. they were still using the technology learned at that time on the experiments they were doing. But, uh... Okay, I got gotcha. you. So he makes these claims, um, and he has uh, also written a series of books known as the Montauk, Montauk Project series, along with Peter Moon, whose real name is Vincent Barbaric. The primary topic of the Montauk Project concerns the alleged activities at Montauk Point. These center on topics including, uh, again, United States government military experiments in fields such as time travel, teleportation, mind control, contact with ETs, and staging faked Apollo moon landings. Uh, I asked you earlier if you'd ever seen the movie Operation Avalanche. And uh, that's a fictional film about uh, like an alternate reality where the guys that made the fake moon landing film make this film they kind of end up making it by accident okay in the movie. it's a found footage movie it's really good though check it out okay. it's, uh, it's not a bad movie it's supposed to be thriller horror um both peter moon and preston nichols have encouraged speculation about the contents allegedly stating and these are the authors of the books whether you read this as science fiction or non-fiction you are in for an amazing story and that's actually what they say in the first chapter of their book. The work has been characterized as fiction because the entire account was fabricated by Preston Nichols. 
All right. I don't think, from all the reading I did, I don't think he's ever actually admitted that it was all fiction. Like, but it is pretty much assumed. <laughs> it's interesting to start your book with the, right. the ending spoiled at the yeah. first line. Because everyone who claims to uh, have been involved uh, still makes the same claims, you know, the same way. Like, you know, they still say all the same things. Yeah. The movie, um, there is a... A movie called The Montauk Chronicles, which came out in 2016, I believe. Um, and uh, there was an article in on HuffPost.com, and some of it was interviews with the director of the movie. So I'm going to read a little bit from that. Um, the title of that article was Montauk Chronicles Claims Time Travel Mind Control Aliens at Camp Hero. When you walk through the area, you see this giant imposing radar tower that still stands, said Christopher Garitano, executive producer, writer, and director of Montauk Chronicles. Above ground, there are also huge doors or bunkers cemented and sealed into the sides of several hills in the forest area. In fact, throughout the wooded park area are what appear to be manhole covers, capping passages that lead where? These obviously go down into something, said Garitano. Some people claim that these are entrances to underground tunnel systems that ran beneath the military base that would supposedly bring you to the actual entrance of the facility. Montauk Chronicles tells the story of three men, Alfred Bialik, Stuart Swerdlow, and Preston Nichols, who claim they were involved when Camp Hero reportedly became an underground site for scientific experiments and atrocities. Um, at first, I didn't believe their stories, Garitano told the Huffington Post. These men have not benefited financially. They didn't gain anything from this, and they've endured ridicule, ridicule as they maintain their story. Bielek, a retired electrical engineer who recently died, told of being part of the legendary Philadelphia experiment in 1943 in which the U.S. Navy is said to have tried to make a destroyer undetectable to radar. The way Bielek's story unfolded, the Navy test ended in disaster, causing the ship to supposedly travel through time. He maintained that he was later recruited in 1970 to work on mind control and time travel projects at the Montauk secret facility. Alfred claimed he was a programmer who designed sequences where kidnapped boys were experimented on to become psychic spies, and he said he was part of these psychic manipulations. Does that sound familiar? <laughs> Stranger Things? I've never seen it. Oh, really? Yeah, Stranger yeah. Things um, apparently is very much influenced by the Montauk project. Okay. Uh, like, books and stuff and uh very much lines up with a lot of the stuff that supposedly happened in the montauk project but in stranger things it's real (laughs) (laughs) nichols like bielek was an electrical engineer he says he worked with bielek at the camp hero location and that he also saw extraterrestrials there quote we had the little grays and larger grays as well as a variety of reptilian beings said nichols the large grays didn't want anything to do with me when i entered a room they would leave Swerdlow, who said he was one of well, many... Well, where were they going? <laughs> right. They're, They're just probably... hanging out, walking around. Man. Like, I'm going to the store. <laughs> Swerdlow, who said he was one of many young boys kidnapped from their homes, claimed he was taken to the Montauk base and subjected to experiments. Beatings, a lot of torture, electrical shock, burials, near drownings. They'd bring you to the point of death, and then they would save you, and the person doing this would be your rescuer and would say, I'm the one that saved you, and remember that. And that became your handler, Swerdlow recalled in the film. After spending so much time with the men whose claims included the creation of a beast from thought waves, Garitano had many doubts about the movie he created. I don't just want to dismiss everything they said. They were subject to a lot of ridicule, but stayed consistent with what they said for many years, including Alfred, right up until his death. Paul Monty, the general manager of Gurney's Inn and president of the Montauk Chamber of Congress, or Chamber of Commerce, rather, (laughs) 
There are a lot of good stories about that area out there. When I came out here in the 1960s, the Air Force still had an active base, so most of the kids I went to grade school with were kids from the base, all Air Force brats. I remember stories about time travel and secret underground experiments and aliens. Through the years, we've seen a lot of characters in Montauk, and we've often used that explanation to explain their existence. Monty told HuffPost that many of the legends of the Camp Hero facility ring true to him and residents of the area. Oh, I believe there were things going on there back in the 1940s and 50s that some level of government activity was taking place out there. The fact that we had an Air Force base out here in Montauk, which was a very remote area during that time, and the fact that it was set up in such a way as to disguise it as a little fishing village so that it wouldn't appear to be what it actually was for many years. I think there's probably some truth to the fact that there were things going on here that were a little bit outside the norm. Hmm. Um, where, where do these yeah. people get all the drugs right. that make them all have well, the, the same fishing village trip? Thing, I thought it. I I didn't remember it till just now, but uh, I that was uh, that was actually a thing at Camp Hero, and like some of that still exists, and you can see it. But they had created it so that it would look like a fishing village. So if people were invading, well, it would look like a fishing village that just blew them up. <laughs> so that part is true. Okay. But, yeah. I got you. Yeah. I did. I it, didn't occur to me until I just read it, but I was like, oh, that was supposed to be in my notes before. I must have chopped it out by accident. But, All right. We're piecing um, it together. <laughs> I'm doing better than normal, I think. I, I, um, just a little bit more. I've got um, Quit bragging. a spyscape.com article that uh, was just kind of uh, any article that I, or not any, but a lot of the articles I found were just comparing uh, Camp Hero and Montauk to uh, Stranger Things. So this um, article was kind of doing that, but it gave uh, a little bit more information. Um, let's see. Uh, number one, the Camp Hero Experiments. Uh, Montauk Project, Project Conspiracy theory, fo- theory followers believe the U.S. government conducted these uh, projects at Camp Hero. Um, Christopher Garitano, the New Yorker behind the 2014 documentary, I said 2016 earlier, investigated allegations brought by three men who claimed they were brainwashed and forced to take part in experiments. Garitano also employed a geophysicist to analyze the ground underneath the old base and found evidence of large structures not recorded on official maps. I didn't get a chance to watch the documentary, but sounds kind of interesting. Um, Garitano says, forget all the alien and MK Ultra crap. That was another M thing I could have done. I think there was some uh, some type of experimentation out there using kids or teenagers, maybe runaways from New York. MK Ultra, I don't know a whole lot about it, but it was an actual government thing uh, experimenting on like mind control and uh, things like that. People believe they used runaway kids and stuff, but it's right. all... That's where you get the adrenochrome yeah. from. But a whole lot less... Con- I mean, MK Ultra was an actual thing, but there's lots of conspiracies that surround Sure, them. yeah. Um, there's the uh, nuclear conspiracy theory. Uh, New York State Park System now owns the abandoned property known alternately as Fort Hero, Montauk Air Force Base, and Camp Hero. Um, <clears throat> the Sage Radar Tower was erected at the base to provide a 30-minute warning in the event of a nuclear attack. The antenna reportedly... Is that really enough time? <laughs> I mean, 30 I guess minutes. It's enough time to be like, oh, okay, I'm going to die. But, yeah, Good love right. you. Bye. I guess maybe it was believed that, I mean, some people maybe could get into bunkers or something, but yeah. All right. Um, a frequency, uh, it had a frequency strong enough to interfere with the neighbor's TV sets. Um, you know, a lot of the theories about what people were freaked out about was mostly what the that radar, like, was causing to happen, you know, electrically. And, you know, that was basically the explanation for a lot of the weirdness going on. But 
I believe that there definitely could have been some kind of secret government stuff going on. Is it aliens and stuff? Eh, probably not. <laughs> what about a government of aliens? A government of aliens. But it was kind of an established base, so sure, they probably had something going on. Sure, there, yeah. But, we don't uh, know everything that they're doing. Right, exactly. Uh, Paul Fagan, a local, scoured the National Archives in Manhattan and believes the U.S. may have also secretly buried a nuclear reactor at the site in the 1950s and that they leaked wild conspiracy theories to deflect from what they were actually doing. Secretly buried a nuclear reactor. I wonder how big this is because the nuclear reactors right. that you normally see are really big. Like, you yeah. just don't like secretly bury it. And that. I guess if it's out in the middle of nowhere, like that guy said, then. And as soon as it's built, then all the guys that built it just get <laughs> shot in the head so they right. won't tell. Um, the next thing it mentions is the Philadelphia experiment. We've already talked about that. Um, they mention uh, a portal into another dimension. Is that uh, an explanation? Mm. Uh, in Stranger Things, the secretive Hawkins Lab is backed by the U.S. Department of Energy. In real life, the Brookhaven National Laboratory, about 60 miles from the Montauk base, is run by the U.S. Department of Energy. Both are home to an interdimensional portal vortex, or as the Stranger Things crew refers to it, a gate into a different dimension. Um that's according to a story on the, in the Long Island Press, which I am not including here. The coincidences don't stop there, according to the newspaper. They're both steeped in mystery. They're both off-limits to the public and well-protected against trespassers. They both feature mind-blowing facilities and equipment that are literally rewriting everything the scientific community understands about cosmic matter. The creation of this universe, nanoparticles, time, space, and so much more, we can only begin to comprehend it all. So, there is a base up there doing that. In the late 1960s, equipment from Brookhaven was moved to Camp Hero and installed in an underground bunker. According to conspiracy theorists, Camp Hero may have been closed above ground, but everything underground remained the property of the Air Force and may still be operational. Um, the final thing, and I said it would only be a little bit of what I talked about, uh, the explanation is uh, it's so secretive because aliens, man. Aliens. <laughs> Camp right. Hero was officially shut down in 1981, but that hasn't stopped the hordes poking around, searching for traces of the aliens supposedly held in underground bunker, bunkers connected by a labyrinth of tunnels. The site fires the imagination much like Nevada's Area 51, which is a test site for the world's most advanced espionage programs and, if the conspiracy theorists are right, a hub for aliens. Huh. So, yeah. So now uh, that Montauk, I mean, the base is... that. It's a state park now. It's basically a big tourist attraction because... Has anybody know. disappeared from there since? <laughs> I, I didn't find any stories about it, but I bet you if you go on Reddit and read about Montauk Project, you find all kinds of fun stuff. I didn't bother to go there because I figured it'd be too much. Now, but. you're saying if I watch Stranger Things, I'm just watching a documentary of this? <laughs> no, you're watching a fictionalized account. Oh, uh, okay. <clears throat> yeah, where there were actually kidnapped kids I thought kids all TV used. was real. Yeah, it is. It exists. It's just fictional. <laughs> oh, I'm confused. Yeah. A lot right. of people are. But Montauk. yeah, that's uh, Montauk, M-O-N-T-A-U-K. There's uh, Apparently it's like a resort land in, uh, in, uh, in New York, and lots of rich people go there and have big fancy houses and stuff. Yeah. Yeah. Of course. And there's also a Pepper Ridge Farm brand of cookie called the Montauk. Wonder how close that is to old Marjorie's uh, one of the mansion. Right. I kept waiting had. for you to say maybe one of her mansions was in Montauk, and I was like, that would have been too crazy. Just have to call the episode Montauk. We'll have to find out how far um, Brookville, New York, is. Right. No, that's not the one. Although I think you said it was in upstate. Brookville was. No, Brookville's in Long Island. Oh, There's okay. another one All that right. was uh, 
in oh Camp Top Ridge is Upper St. Regis Lake, New York. Okay. Upper St. Regis Lake. Yeah, like I know where that is. I don't know anything yeah, about New yeah, York. Me either. So yeah. Awesome. Yeah, yeah, that was a that was a fun one to to read about man. you found the letter m on there i did i found you finally found a letter M. my, my search history is now full of things <laughs> starting letter m blank starting letter <laughs> right. m it's like trying to make that story about margarine <laughs> like stretch out but just couldn't do it <laughs> yeah <laughs> yeah uh yeah. so well thanks yeah we, thanks uh, everybody we appreciate you. Like we said, like last week was record-breaking. Let's keep doing it. Yeah, tell, yeah. Keep on people. listening. Thank you very much. Listen to us. One day we're going to yeah. charge you, so enjoy it. Yeah. It's going to be expensive, <laughs> too. You're not going to believe the price. Right? Yeah. Um, Shakespeare got to get paid. We're going to be taking like a two-week hiatus. We're going on a uh, bro- brocation. Yeah, brocation. And uh, <clears throat> it's kind of overlapping two weeks, so we're it'd just be too difficult to do because we have no motivation um <laughs> so we'll be back after the new year so yeah so happy new year enjoy your buddy catch up on some of those old episodes while you're waiting to hear new stuff For real. we'll have some we got some good things coming ahead so yeah. um Thanks for checking us out. Go on organdonor.gov and sign up. Give them away. Yes, please do. You know, then maybe you give them away and then somebody will like sell them off later. Yeah. Because, you know. You're not going to use those wrists after you die. Well, that's right. It was wrist replacement. <laughs> All right. And, uh, thanks again, guys. We'll see you on the next one. Bye.